Go ahead, if you would do me a favor, grab your Bible. You can turn to James chapter 5, James 5. We're about, I don't know, about six weeks away from wrapping up our time in James. Uh, if you're new here, we've been, we've been going through the book since about September. So what we do here at the church is we mainly preach through books of the, of the Bible. We preach expositionally. It, it kind of goes along with really the name of the church, which is substance, um, which means really our, our aim and our goal is that we want these words, we want God's word, we want the gospel really to encompass, we want it to be the, the substance of our lives. So that's why we named the church what we did. It passed the two-week test. And uh, here we go, we have the name now, you know, um, but just to give you a little context with it. Um, but really what James has been, has been laying out for us uh, for the last six months is wisdom. So James' primary message to us is that we would seek the words of God, we would seek the wisdom from above, that we would be warned against the wisdom from the, of the world that just per, kind of permeates our culture and our lives and is always trying to dig itself into our hearts. And part of wisdom, wisdom is not only applying what we know is true from God's word in our life in order to make right decisions, but it's also to, to, to take warnings and to say, hey, there are things in our lives that threaten to overwhelm, to, to blind us, and to kind of overtake our hearts. And so, man, what we've been getting are just these really amazingly blunt words from the book of James, where he just doesn't really take any prisoner. You know, he, he's just kind of laying it out to us, like, so honestly. And we're going to get probably, like, the most honest uh, words from James and, and kind of, you know, blunt words from James we've ever gotten. But wherever you find yourself, whatever age you are, right, so you're elementary school age, um, you're a high school student, you're a college student, you, uh, you're senior, you are, you're in your 20s like Melissa and I are, you know, you're just getting started in life. Um, man, all of us can benefit um, from wisdom in the place that we're at, in the life stage that we're at. And this, this is a really unique uh, message for us because, again, we're going to get some of James' most strongest, most scathing words for those who are rich and for those who you not only rich, but who use their wealth to harm instead of help others. And interestingly, what we're going to see here is that he's, he's calling down judgment in these verses at the beginning of chapter 5 on unbelievers. He's not really speaking to the church uh, directly, the, the letter was to the churches, but his message is for those who have not been saved by faith in Christ alone. But they are words that we need to hear, that the church needed to hear. Why? Well, because you guys know this as well as I do, because money does funny things to us, right? And money does fun. My brother used to say that. Money does funny things. And the Bible warns against the effects that money has on those who get trapped by its allure. Man, I mean, money is so destructive, right? I mean, we've seen it divide families. It brings death to relationships. It can be devastating for those who are less privileged, who become victims to those who abuse their power because they're wealthier and they have the money that gives them the opportunity to do that. You're rarely going to find stories of fallen leaders where money isn't a major player in their downfall. Right? It just permeates our culture. Money tempts us. Right? It's, it's insidious in that. It's deceptive in that. It's a temptation. It's a temptation for us to put our trust in something that is not only collapsible, but also corrodes 
our hearts. And we've seen the devastating effect of, of money stuff like all through, you know, all through, all through our history, really. Man, I remember, gosh, remember, do you remember 2008? I mean, some of you might be too young to remember 2008. Some of you are like, I'm, tr- I'm still trying to forget 2008, right? When everybody who paid $50,000 for their houses and then refied them for like $1.5 million, you know, later, and then the whole thing just went, no, actually none of that is true. And it just put the entire nation into financial ruin and collapse. And what happened in all of that is not necessarily that everybody was losing their money as much as what you were really hearing was just the stories of devastation and relational collapse and families being torn apart because what they thought was going to be their future financially ended up not being true, right? And so look what James says as we dive into chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. He says this. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold... Verse 4, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. I want to just go, all right, welcome to Substance. Let's pray. Let's do donuts. Man, what am I going to do with this, right? Um, Well, we're going to learn just a couple of things as we dive into this. The first thing that we learn is the effects of unredeemed riches. That's really what James is driving at today, are the effects of unredeemed riches. And the first thing that we learn in verses one through three is that they consume when riches have, bec- have, have risen to this place in our lives where they've become unredeemed, they're not doing anybody any good, but they're actually doing harm. Man, they consume us. G- James calls for just this incredibly deep and dark lament to those who have been consumed by their riches. He's painting just this stark picture. I don't know if there's a starker picture about riches in Scripture, but he's painting this stark picture for the person who needs to wake up to the wealth that they've amassed and see how it has utterly consumed and corroded their souls. Weep and howl, James says. Now, those are sobering words. And remember, he's, he's speaking really not to the church, but to those within that community that whose hearts hadn't been saved, whose hearts had not been redeemed by Jesus, but yet he wanted to communicate this word to the church as a warning to say this is what can happen if we're not careful. Now, is it because riches are inherently bad? Well, no, because the Bible doesn't actually teach that. The Bible makes it clear that it's the love of money, not money itself, that is the problem. 1 Timothy 6.10, Paul tells Timothy, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, he says that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many 
pangs. So the warning there is like, man, it, it's not actually money. It's this desire. It's this craving. It's what it's rooted in that starts to corrode our souls, right? So people with high income, moderate income, low income, no income can all be lovers or cravers of money. But James is specifically going after those for whom money has corrupted their hearts, and he wants us. He wanted the churches that he was writing to to see the effects of this level of greed, which are misery and rottenness and corrosion. James says, you have laid up treasures in the last days. In other words, you don't even see, you don't have any power to see when it is that your life will be over. And yet, this is what you are spending your time doing. It's really in stark contrast to the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, 19, when he said, hey, listen, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. In other words, lay up the right kind of riches that don't collapse and don't corrode. So for those who spend their time laying up treasures on earth instead of heaven, they are cultivating hearts that resemble the corrosive nature of the riches they are trying to attain. It's almost like becoming what you hate. It's almost like you are what you eat, right? So those who make riches their gods will be enslaved to the effects that that God will have on their life and on their heart. You guys remember Ebenezer Scrooge. I don't know why that guy's coming up in these sermons. I, have, I feel like every week. Because I'm, I'm, I love Christmas so much. I'm just like, man, it's like seven more months and we're like getting into the Christmas season. If we can just like kind of get there. I'm not even looking at my wife right now. because She's like shaking her head, right? She's like, Ronnie, can we just, can we have summer? That would be really awesome if we could enjoy some, some summer months, right? But Ebenezer Scrooge, right? The famous story of Ebenezer Scrooge, right? The way Charles Dickens portrays him, which is really uh, the super talented guy that had all this, that had, had all this like financial, had just this financial head on his shoulders and um, just this astute kind of businessman, you know, if you want to break it down like that. The problem with Eb, with Scrooge, it, it wasn't that he had a gift for finances. It wasn't that he made a lot of money. God had given him that kind of mind to accomplish those kinds of things. It wasn't that. It was that his heart was given over to those things to the degree that his character resembled all that was going to pass away. His character had become like the thing he was chasing after, which is that it was corrosive. It was collapsible. Remember, we learned last week, uh, if you were here, that our lives are a mist. Remember, James described our lives as being a mist of all the things he could have described your life and my life like. He describes it like the steam that comes out of your kettle on the stove, right? He could have picked any denser substance, right? You know, he could have picked any, he could have picked oatmeal. He didn't. He didn't say your lives are like oatmeal, they're pretty thick, it's going to last. 
In fact, if you bury that stuff in a hole, it'll probably still be there a thousand years from now. He said, no, you're like a mist, something that you can't even contain, something that if you try to grab at it, your hand's just gonna fall through it and get burned. That's how he described our lives, that we don't know what tomorrow will bring. So he said, remember last week, he said to boast about our dreams, to kind of shoot our mouth off about our plans, it's evil. Why is it evil? Aren't there more like evilly things out there? Well, this is why he said it's evil, because it doesn't acknowledge God as the supreme, gracious, and good ruler over our lives. So if we give ourselves to riches and to the acquiring of things that will eventually corrode, the first thing that becomes corroded is our hearts. James' message to the rich, who again are, are this unregenerate people that he was, he was kind of calling out in judgment here, is to weep and to howl, is to see the consumption of riches for what they really are, which is that they rot you from the inside, that they will be ultimately an un doing for you. Man, James' words are so strong in his warning about the effects of riches and the pursuit of riches and the all-encompassing effect that they can have on us. Proverbs mirrors James' words here. Proverbs eleven twenty eight says, whoever trusts in his riches will fall. Do we believe that? But the righteous, it says, will flourish like a green leaf. So you see that contrast we get, that beautiful contrast. Psalm 62.9 says, listen to this, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. So man, he's keeping it pretty even there, right? In the balances, they go up. They are together, lighter than a breath. And then he says, put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, here's the big piece right here. He says, set not your heart on them. So not only do unredeemed riches consume us, but here's the second point. They consume others. They consume Others. One thing we know about our sin and the things that we pursue that begin to overwhelm our hearts and shape the person we are is that it affects not just us, right? It affects those around us. Man, I love, okay, one of the things I love about Ashland, because before we moved here, I never experienced this, is this spring cleaning thing where you literally can take out like every piece of trash you've ever had collectively in your life and put it on the side of your house and like somebody comes and just gets it and they take it away. I don't know where away is. We can get into that another time. But I just know that it's not there. Like I spent like an entire day moving everything that I ever owned to the side of my house and like half of you guys at some point came, collected what you wanted and then a truck came the next day and took the rest. Literally, I will never move, I will never leave Ohio because that's a, that's a fringe benefit that I never ever thought that I would benefit from, man. But I'm telling you, I love it. But listen, here's my point. If half my garage stays strewn out in front of my house forever, it's going to affect those around me, right? It's going to change the look of my neighborhood. It did for that three days and I was super stressed about that but it's gonna change the look of my neighborhood. 
It's going to lower home prices and values, right? It's going to create an environment that's less healthy and less clean to be around. Now, you can make the argument, well, man, it's your stuff. It's your property. Well, sure. But other people will be affected negatively by it. And that should matter to me. That should deeply matter to me. That should deeply matter to you. So when we look at the things that consume us, and James is talking about riches here, none of that happens in a vacuum. The way that you are affected by a sin also affects me. Why? Because as uh, as a community, as a family of God, man, none of us operates in isolation, right? It's just not how we were built. We all affect how another person lives and breathes and enjoys what they enjoy or is under things that they will never be able to enjoy, right? James is saying that wealth gained through the mistreatment of others is seen by the Lord. That's what he says when we get into verse four. The Lord hears their cries. And listen, what a gracious reminder for us that those who experience any kind of abuse from those who have mishandled their economic positions are not ignored by the Lord. He sees and he hears. This is the kind of God that we know, that we see from scripture. The cries of injustice reach the ears of the Lord of hosts. But we are warned here by James to make sure we are not the cause of those cries. And then by way of implication, we have to remember that those we know who are affected by that kind of mishandling and mistreatment, it's up to us as the church to walk alongside and to pull in and to help and to show mercy and grace and generosity too. That's our piece in that. What James is describing when we get to verse five is the person who remains oblivious to the cries of those who would otherwise benefit from their generosity. He uses the word self-indulgence. Oh man, none of us like to think that we're self-indulgent. All of us would love to come up with like a list of at least three ways that we're not really self-indulgent, right? We'd like to find ways that we're really not just completely all about our own comfort and our own accumulation of the things that we love and enjoy. But here's what we know for sure, based on God's word, is that self-indulgence doesn't happen when we share what we have with others, right? It's what you hope your kid is learning in kindergarten right now. And by kindergarten, I mean like your living room, right? Because that's been our experience the last year. But that's what we hope, right? Self-indulgence doesn't happen when we share what God has given us with others, when we realize that we don't own anything. And all the stuff that we do take ownership over, all it is is the stuff of future garage sales. And that includes our cash. That includes our money. Self-indulgence, here's what it is, all right? 
It's a denial that what we have is the Lord's and that we will perish with it if we do no good with it while we have it. Does that make sense? Let me just say that again. Self-indulgence is a denial that what we have is the Lord's and that we will perish with it if we do no good with it while we have it. If we do no good, that will benefit another person. Turn to Luke 12. I'm going to have us go back to the Gospels. Luke chapter 12. Look at this story. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. And it's called the parable of the rich fool. And someone in the crowd said to him, Luke 12, 13, teacher, talking to Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to them, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And, and then he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, nowhere does it say here that having more crops and building bigger barns was really the issue. That is not the implication here. I have nowhere to store my crops. Well, that can be a real problem, right? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones and store all my grain and my goods still. Some of you guys are like, I don't see the problem. There is no problem yet, right? And then you get to verse 19, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Do you see what's missing in that narrative with this guy? Is that he thinks that all of the things that have come by the hand of God, his abundance of crops, his bigger barns were there only for himself. Nowhere does it say, look what I can do with this wealth. Look how I can distribute it. Look how I can help the people that are next to me who don't have the crops that I have. What I want to do is just live in luxury and self-indulgence because, man, Easy Street has arrived, and yet Jesus says, you're a fool because you have no idea what the end of your life is. It mirrors exactly what we learned last week in James 4 about our lives being a mist. Psalm 112 verse 5 reminds us, it is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. Do you see what the Bible does? They combine this kind of generosity that someone who claims to be a follower of Christ has with justice, with enacting justice. So generosity in a lot of ways is a way that justice comes to those who have not received it and experienced it. Why? Well, because unredeemed riches can lead to abuses of power and injustice. 
And not only do they enslave those around us, but they enslave us. They enslave the ones that are engaging in them. We become possessed by our possessions. We are not, we're not immune to any of this. So what, wherever you're at, economically or socioeconomically in the room, it just, it doesn't matter. And I'm not saying it doesn't matter because it doesn't matter. It matters in the sense that you can be somebody with a lot of cash, you can be somebody with some cash, and you can be somebody with barely any cash. And that's not the issue. The issue is what kind of hold does that cash have on your heart that can become corroded by a lot of it or a little of it? Does that make sense? First Timothy chapter 6 verse 9 says, but those who desire to be rich. You see, what? it doesn't say the rich. He says the desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and into many senseless and harmful desires, listen to this, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Man, this is, these are such strong words from James. Unredeemed riches. So I don't want to close with that because I want to close with the effect of redeemed riches. I want to close with Jesus because that's how we close our sermons here at Substance. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the effect of redeemed riches. And this is what we know, right? So here's, here's the baseline of it. Is riches will only become redeemed when the heart of the rich is redeemed. It's a heart thing, right? Riches, the wealth, the stuff, the things, will only be redeemed when the heart of the rich is redeemed first. We learn in 1 Timothy 6 again. As for the rich... Paul tells Timothy, in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Oh man, we just glaze over that word enjoy. Why? Why do we think God is so curmudgeonly that he doesn't give people things to enjoy, that he doesn't even give some people riches to enjoy, that he hasn't blessed everybody in this room with a degree of riches, even if we put ourselves against the rest of the known world. He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. What Paul is getting at is that there are even richer riches and how we tend to snap in our minds and think and how we tend to actually devalue what are the real riches in our life and always go to those material wealths and items and things. What scripture points out to us over and over again is that there are richer riches. The Christian has something that surpasses all earthly wealth. And when our mind becomes convinced of this truth, our hearts are going to be filled with a deeper joy and our hands will be full of a self-denying generosity. The effect of redeemed riches is number one, we're, we'll be blessed because our eyes will be open to what is actually wealth. Go to Romans. Let's turn to Romans 11.33. You want to make a hard right. End of John, past Acts, into Romans. 
I'm looking for it just like you. Here we go. Romans 11.33, this amazing passage for us where Paul says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? This helps us understand a little bit about our riches and our wealth and where it comes from and what it's designed to point us to in the end. Listen to verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So we will be blessed when we begin to understand what the richer riches really are and who they really are and who they go through and from who they come and who they're meant to give glory to. See, we see riches, we see abundance of something. It's meant to point us to something greater than the riches that we have. It's meant to point us to a deeper riches, which of course, for the Christian, is Jesus Christ, amen? They will also bless others. The effect of redeemed riches is they will bless others. Let's go back to Luke, all right? I'm going to read you something as we're finishing our time here. Luke 19, the story of Zacchaeus, who I think is the wee little man guy that we learned about. Is that right? Did I get a yes on that? All right. It's an incredible story. Listen to what it says. Uh, talking about Jesus, he entered Jericho, Luke 19.1, and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, not a super loved guy by the Jewish community, by the way. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Poor Zacchaeus, man. That guy's just been brutalized over the years for that comment. We're not going to do that here right? Um, Verse four, so he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down for I must stay at your house today. So don't ever feel bad about just inviting yourself over to people's houses, you know? Uh, Verse six, so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, listen to this. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone and anything, I restore it fourfold. It's not that his riches were bad. It's that his riches had consumed and corroded his heart until Jesus had redeemed his heart, which then redeemed his riches. And Jesus said to him, today, verse 9, salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So we will be blessed when we see the depths and riches that come to us because of the cross and because of Jesus Christ. And we will bless others when we look at what God has given to us And we're rightfully caught up in this sobering truth that maybe, just maybe, 
My riches have become the thing that I identify with more than the Christ who has given me both my riches and my identity. So I'm gonna end with these questions. These are just gonna be some questions, four questions I wanna ask. Um, If you take notes, you can write these down. You can pop these into your device if you have a device, or you can just listen. The first one is this. Do we need, do you need to repent of excess? Do you need to repent of overaccumulation, right? Because sometimes we find that we feel, you know, we can start, that, that inner defense attorney's all rising up in us right now. Man, I don't know. I'm not really all that about money. Am I, am I, am I, you know? And um, like this morning, like I, cl- I or, like I clicked on Amazon this morning. So like I'm, I'm just, you know, you guys need to see me for the fool that I am. So I am, I am prepping my sermon at 5.30 a.m. And a thought came into my mind about something I needed to order. Jillian shaking her head. And so I went, oh, shoot. And I went and I just spent some quality time on Amazon before Sunday morning and ordered that thing that I needed. Right? Again, was there anything wrong with that? I don't know. Kind of. Right? I mean, it wasn't anything I'm super hyped about. It was this little teeny light that I can snap on my computer. Right? But the point that I'm trying to make through all of this is like, there is something in us that dismisses overaccumulation and excess. Why? Because we live in a world that doesn't think anything about it. We live in a world that's just trying to acquire more and is trying to convince you to acquire more, right? So what we need to do is have the Spirit speak to us in these moments and make us aware if our lives now can be characterized by overaccumulation. Now, was that my story this morning, I'll let you guys decide that and pray for me. But you see how insidious it is. Do you see how, how right there it is? The option for it, right? Ten years ago, I would have been clicking on anything, right? And now it's right there. It's in our pocket. Again, I'm not being all anti-Amazon. I'm a prime guy, right? That's not the point, Right? Second question, what barriers do you face in becoming more rich toward God? Remember the story of the rich young ruler? And he kind of came, he's a little arrogant. He came up to the Lord and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus laid out some commandments to him. And he said, yep, I've kept all of them. And Jesus said, well, the one thing, you ha- the one thing I want you to do is sell all your possessions then come, come and follow me. And he said he walks away sad because he had many possessions, right? They were a barrier for him. He wasn't rich toward God. You face those barriers. Is there something in your life that has become a barrier? Are you more rich toward your community? Are you more rich toward your church family? Are you more rich toward Amazon? than you are toward God. Thirdly, how can you bless others with your abundance? I know that's an easy thing for the pastor to kind of lob on a Sunday morning. I'm lobbing it back at myself too. This is us here together. How can we bless others with our abundance? And you know what? We all have an abundance. We just do. I'll just argue with any of you if you want to tell me about your your lack of abundance. That's not really the point. It's not really the point of how much or how little do you have. It's 
with what God has given you, are you benefiting others with it because you see constantly that the grace of Christ is being given to you on a day-by-day basis and opening up your heart to the beauty and the wonder and the truth and the splendor of Christ. So it doesn't matter how much or how little you have. How can you bless others with your abundance? Finally, here's my fourth question. If you only get one thing, get this. Do you daily reflect on the generosity of Jesus? The generosity of Jesus Christ, the most generous person because he was fully God and he was fully man. So he was a person that was generous to us when he descended to earth and became a man. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul, Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. There's really no better news for us this morning than that. This is the gospel right here. Christ is the only way for us to avoid being corroded by riches. When we see, when you see Christ as your greatest possession, it brings clarity to all of your earthly possessions. We see them as gifts for good that bring glory to God, who is the greater gift. We have the richer riches because we've been redeemed by the one who became poor for our sake. That is the gospel. That is everything for us. That is the life changer so that riches don't become this idol that you are enslaved to and that your heart becomes corroded over instead of experiencing the freedom of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the riches that we have because Jesus came and died and gave us something that rust or moths cannot destroy. God, I pray this morning that as a church we would seek you first in your righteousness. We'd remember, Lord, that you care for us, you care deeply for us and our needs. You know what we need more than we even know what we need. Lord, I pray that we'd walk out of here sober but also happy because our riches, our wealth, our things don't have to enslave us. We can become generous with our community. We become generous with our church and our neighbors because we've been bought with a price because we are not our own person anymore because everything that we own is yours. And Lord, there is a freedom in that, Lord. I pray that we would grasp that I pray that we would get that. I pray that we would be changed and sanctified by that. Jesus, you have given us all thanks. And we thank you. And we pray that we are humbled by that and you would give us a spirit of generosity like no other. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.